Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. You talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another episode of Words and Nerds, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I bring you the marvellous Tristan Banks, fresh after his book launch with Megan Daly at Where the Wild Things Are in Brisbane, where there was a full house of excited fans to get their hands on Cop and Robber. And now we're sitting in a cafe. You will hear cafe noise, but that's okay, because we're having a good time. We just had eggs, actually, and you had bacon. Yes, bacon and eggs. You just had eggs on the plate. Just two eggs on the plate. I did. Looked amazing. Very zen. Oh, right. I feel like you were teasing me. No, no, no. It did. It just looked like pure. Pure and simple. Yeah. Exactly. I am having a hot chocolate with it, and it's a giant hot chocolate. It is. And what are you drinking? Or drank? It's gold. Uh, Almond almond flat white. Almond flat white. Mm -hmm. Because you've gone off the coffee. Is that right? Yeah. I've been doing a bit of decaf as well. It makes me twitchy if I don't... uh, if I have too much and the thing is being a writer you spend so much time just sitting at home sometimes your heart's racing but your body isn't moving at all so you just spit yeah your heart's going body does nothing for months at a time (laughs) and so I'm trying to reverse the process sounds very healthy yeah it is it is it's a very healthy lifestyle healthy lifestyle of a writer I get it I get it Elevator Pitch is what I'm after, Cop and Robber. Brilliant book, loved it. The kids today, even though they hadn't read it, they heard all your stories about it, and you did this amazing presentation of how it all came together. Give us an elevator pitch for Cop and Robber. It's about a kid whose mum's a cop and his dad's a robber, and he spends half the week at each of their houses, and his dad's always doing dodgy things, and his mum's always asking what his dad's up to, but he doesn't want to dob his dad in, and he doesn't want to lie to his mum. And then these guys come to his dad's house and demand hundreds of thousands of dollars that his dad owes them. But he doesn't have the hundreds of thousands of dollars anymore. And so he he has three days to pull off the biggest crime of his life in order to pay them back. And he wants Nash to help him pull off this crime. So Nash has to decide, you know, will I help him or do I dob him into mum, which will mean dad will go to jail. Many things to consider. Many things to consider. And it's that moral question which I love too, particularly for a kid. So you're throwing this moral question to this kid of what do you do and it's not I guess it's not really choosing between the parents it's choosing between circumstances and what would you do yeah hopefully hopefully it'll spark lots of conversations with kids where they're asked you know what would they do a lot of kids I have been asking kids in sessions and there's always like two kids in the session they're like dob my dad in they obviously want to dob their dad in for something um, but most kids are like well I don't know what would I do I, you know, I don't want my parent to go to jail but I also don't really want to commit a crime for them um, so yeah look, hopefully it'll spark lots of classroom and home conversations I love anything with moral ambiguity because really in this case you might think there's a right answer but there's actually no right answer when you're stuck in the middle of it and you love your parents equally yeah exactly Um, 
Yeah, so it's fun ones to write as yeah. well. Makes it difficult to write because you're always having to ask yourself the question throughout and having to wrestle with your own feelings on it and not be sort of judgmental and also not try to, within the story, try to moralise. Yeah. I think that it'd be easy within that situation to say, well, the right thing to do, kids, is to uh, tell someone, you know, tell an adult and then solve the problem, you know, and you, you don't want to do that because you don't want kids to be bored and... And life's not like that. Life's not black or white. It's no. so many shades of grey that you're always making these decisions. Maybe not as big as that one, but you're always making decisions like that. And I think, you know, exposing kids to that is really interesting because at least it brings up a conversation. Yeah. There's a line in the book where Nash thinks, um, you know, when mum arrests dad and Nash says uh, he figures that every divorced parent probably would like to arrest the other one just once. <laughs> And uh, I figure kids, even if their parents are together sort of thing, they sort of see it sometimes that one parent would love to arrest the other one and just take them down, you know, to the station. And so you not only throw this thing where the parents are separated, the child's living a week here and a week there, which I actually did in my childhood. Can I tell you, it's a nightmare. So you're not only thrown that at, at your protagonist, you've also thrown in the extra moral ambiguity and him being part of this potential crime. Right, yeah. I always have, I've had since for the past few books I had this vision of a kid walking between their parents' places like they live in the city say and the kid has to walk between the two parents' places on and that what happens on that walk and that transition and that shifting from that. the rules at one parent's place to the rules at the other and obviously if the parents have split up sometimes they want to live quite different lives yeah. sort of thing and so I always had that vision, so I, I, I was able to use that, that image of the kid sort of moving from one place to the next and, and adapting. I love that. And, you know, kids are resilient, but it, it is a hard position to be in because when you're a teenager, you've got a lot going on already. <laughs> and then you've got this going on as well of, you know, I like what you said about the different rules at different places because that's totally exactly what would happen. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I think he says something like it. It's like moving to a different country every week, yeah. and he has to and he has to adapt to the language and almost wow. like you're using different currency in order to get things yeah. done. Or um, and yeah, it would, character it would building be at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> now your process in writing is generally a long one. I've heard you speak about your writing, formally and informally, and it takes you a long time to write books. You do a lot of research. You have a lot of visual representations. You showed today at your book launch. This beautiful, what would you call it, outline? Yeah. Of and it was in. It was on a, graph, a spreadsheet. On a spreadsheet. Yeah. Couldn't find the word spreadsheet. <laughs> and it was amazing to see how detailed that was. Is that why it takes you a long time, or do you redraft, or do you delve into character? What is it that takes the time? All of the above, really. <laughs> I sort of wish I, I have friends who work in TV. And sometimes in about a third draft when I'm just in knots like I am on my current book that I'm writing, um, I will speak to one of them and they'll have a look at my current outline and then they'll go, okay, well this, 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 this and this and it untangles the knots. Oh, wow. And, you know, partly I wish that I was able to do that up front and I could think in that very clean plot way that this is what should happen. But I think it's the getting lost along the way that actually allows you to bump into the organic, interesting stuff. Yeah. So I, I like to exist in that world between um, total chaos, where you really don't know what you're doing and you feel you know chaotic all the time, and that very organised space where, yes, you can plot it and you can outline and you can stick to the 
to the plot, but sometimes when you impose uh, plot points on a story, it's a very sort of blunt instrument. Yeah. It's a very, um, it feels, sometimes it feels like a very basic sort of instrument, and uh, and the story can be worse for it. Mm, that's really interesting. Now, with the books, your most recent books, so we're talking The Fall, Two Wolves, Detention, and now Cop and Robber, have you had that chaos throughout all of those books in that process? I think so. I think I, but prior to that, I used to outline because okay. I learned to write fiction by writing, by screenwriting. Yeah. And so you're always taught to do a step outline. So, but with Two Wolves, I just wanted to write. You know? I didn't even know if I could write it. So I just started writing and I wrote a couple of very messy drafts that were weird and too short and all over the place and, you know, strange tangents, but I'd just follow the tangent. And I enjoyed it so much. And also I discovered all these things that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And so I've tried to keep that up on the novels. I always just write. And, and um, I think I used to be scared of getting myself to that point yep. where I was stuck and I didn't know where, and I wanted to you know, expedite the process. I wanted to make it quicker so that you, know, you can write more books, but that's not really the plan, is it? The plan is to write good, good books. books yeah. And so I tend to just um, embrace the chaos, go down into the jungle on it, know that I'm gonna get myself to where I am on my current work in progress, and but know that it will it will somehow be more organic. Yep. No, I love that, and it's, it's interesting that perhaps in your first book of this sort of genre, you were wondering whether you could untangle. But now that you've written a number of those type of books, do you have confidence that you will be able to untangle it and get to there? Like you're in the middle of Scartown now, and that's was you started that in 2009. Yes. So you're still feeling like you can untangle this one? No. Uh, <laughs> But, but then when I look back at my notes from all of the other books, I, I have like, you know, notes after draft, after reading draft three, which is what I've done recently. Um, I realise on all the books, I'm like, oh my God, this is chaos. And there's no way I'm finding myself out of this. And, and it's exactly the same. And it's actually when you put your head down for those last few months and you write a couple of drafts, that it, it, all, it all comes together in theory. It doesn't feel like it right now that it will, but it's like when you know, I'm in talks with kids in school, I'll say, so who's a planner and who's a pantser? Who flies by the seat of their pants and who really plans their stories? And of course, there are three kids in the whole group that say they plan, and even the teachers look a bit suspicious on them. And then, and then the rest of them are pantsers, and they sort of guiltily and they laugh and they think it's funny. And adults do the same. But I, I always tell them they don't need to feel so guilty about being pantsers, that I'm a bit of a combination of both. At some stage you should outline because you just get yourself out of trouble, you know, rather than abandoning yeah. the story. Um, but actually I think the pantsing, I think the, the fly and the, and the writing like a reader where you're just yeah. writing the next chapter because it makes sense that if that happened then this happened and then what might happen next, I really feel like there's a, it takes an unusual route and it means when the reader is reading the story, rather than a plot-imposed story, I think the reader finds it harder to predict where the story's going yeah. next. And it keeps it interesting for you, right? Because if you've planned every single movement, there's no more surprises for you. And part of the fun in writing is going, oh, I just have this great idea, or this character needs to do this. Like, it's almost like the characters are speaking to you or behaving in the way that you've created them, right? I think so. But it does, it does help to have that basis in yep. three-act structure or in however many act structure you want to work in and in key turning points and all those things do help you so that when you are um, flying by the seat of your pants you're also um, you have something to rely on yeah. you have some markers yeah. on no, it sounds like a good 
contrast actually. It sounds like a really good contrast of being planned enough to then be able to surprise yourself and when you do get un- get stuck in knots you can go back to your plan and see if you can untangle yeah, the Yeah, exactly. But not ruled by the plan, but then not not in total jungle mode like all the time. It's so imperfect. I can't tell you how imperfect it, it is. Perfect. It does sound perfect. I mean, I'm talking about it. I'm like, yeah, why don't I just do that? But um, it, when you're in it, it doesn't feel like yeah, yeah. it doesn't feel perfect. And when you're holding your book, is there kind of like that feeling of like, thank God, or a part of you knew you'd get there? I mean, you're an experienced writer now. Part of me knows I'll get there, but you really genuinely though. You'd be, each time Self-doubt. I'm surprised by how genuinely I feel that yeah. I'm not going to get there yeah. and it's not just me being modest or whatever yeah. it's really well, genuinely it's a real thing. it yeah. and I think actually our NaNoWriMo um, even though NaNoWriMo is supposed to be a first draft and getting to 50,000 words I the couple of times that we've done it on the podcast I've done like a third draft or a fourth draft or something but it's really helped me through a hump on the story you know sometimes those middle drafts are really difficult yeah. and yeah. it's just gotten me to the other side of that you know, Cop and Robber was part of that Nano Ryan. Yeah, movie. I know. I and Scar Town as well. Scar Town as well, I think last year mm. I went through it. So I need one. I was just saying before, I need. I need um, Nanjuno. Nano July. July. Yeah, it's already July. Nano Orgo. I need something <laughs> in the next couple of months. Some some sort of divine <laughs> it intervention. doesn't have the to same ring to it, though, does no. it? <laughs> Nano Julo? I don't know. I don't like I don't Nano mind Julo, it. Yeah. Say it enough times. I think you can do whatever you want, Tristan. Thank you. And I don't think the rye, we're we're, we're getting rid of the rye, and Mm. and I think we need to go, anyway, we'll work on it. You'll work on it. Maybe we won't workshop it now while we're recording. It would (laughs) seem boring to the listeners. (laughs) And look, if Adrian Beck's listening, he'll be shaking his head going, you've got to follow the rules of NaNoWriMo, Tristan, you've got to follow the rules. He's very much, very rule bound, isn't he? Yeah, he is, but he did break the rule. Remember, he went into the 10 items or less with 11 items. That's right. And he was so proud of himself. I was proud of him. He's a very sweet young man, isn't he? I wouldn't go so far to say that, Tristan. But yes, a rule follower. My nemesis, and (laughs) sometimes a sweet young man. (laughs) I'm thinking if we do 50,000 words this year, and we do, like if I'm writing a picture book, how many picture books would I have to write to get to 50,000 words? You did write like 200 picture books, do you think? (laughs) Maybe. I'm bad at maths. uh, Yeah, me too. Yes. Now, the one thing I wanted to ask you about in this book, Cop and Robber, the dad. How do you make the dad likable? He's a criminal. He wants to get his son involved in crime. How do you make this character likable? Which you did. Um, well, he thinks that he's a legendary. He thinks he's like a modern day bush ranger. Like he thinks he's like a legendary. He thinks he's really good at committing crimes because he was a professional boxer and he was really good at knocking people out. And he's sort of trying to, he doesn't want to be bad at something now, so he's trying to hone his craft, but he's just not a very good robber. And I think there's something, don't you think there's something sort of um, endearing about that? You know, that someone, that someone that he's really excited about, he gets excited about bush rangers, and he's always boasting to Nash about how good he is, but then Nash says, but didn't you get caught? And he's like, yes, but, you know... And there's just something, I think, likeable about bumbling grins. Mm. I love bumbling yeah. grins. And humour. Humour, you always find likability in that. If there's any characters, it's a likeable quality. I think so. I think so. He's, he's, he's good and bad. And I think 
we want characters that have um, have different shades, right? Yeah, totally. And then, you know, Nash, which way is he going to go? At times he does things that he shouldn't be very proud of, and other characters do things that they might not be proud of as well, just as we do yeah. as individuals. Yeah. So, it's know. really interesting, his journey too, Nash, you know, coming from the two opposing sides. You need some kind of sequel when he's 25. What happens to him? Yeah. I don't know. Which road does he take? Yes. Is he a crooked cop? Ooh. Is he a good be. criminal? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so this, is, this is going to happen in NaNoWriMo. When you've handed in Scar Town yep. to your publisher and that's done and beautiful and dusted, good stuff. Cop and robber. Maybe. The, the, uh, the university years or something like that. Or the, I want to know what happens to Ben in Two Wolves as well. Oh, you know, He yeah, wants to be a yeah. police officer. Maybe I, they can meet. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, that would be good. Maybe better rest. I'm giving you Nash. the worst ideas ever. Uh, I think my future, um, you know, adult, when I grow up in about, you know, 20 years time or something like that, all my adult books would be, you know, seeing where Sequels. my, where where my 12 now? and 13 year old characters, where they end it up. It could be a Where Are You Now series. Yeah. Um, and so I guess my readership will have grown up then too. That's right. And so... I anyway, did actually want to know what happened good. to Ben. That's funny you say that. Because that's a character that still sticks in my mind. And I, I care about those characters so much. Yeah. What happened to them? Uh, sometimes um, kids have been reading Two Wolves in class and we brainstorm what a sequel could be. Mm-hmm. And, and with this one group, we were sort of going, okay, well, what if Ben does become a cop and he's in the academy or something like that, or just out of the academy, and then maybe his dad dies or something, and maybe, um, maybe Olive who was seven in the beginning, maybe she's 13 now, at the same old age as Ben was, and then maybe she comes to Ben and together they try to work out, she tries to force Ben to try to find out what really happened to their dad. heard it here first, this is Scoop everyone, this is Tristan's uh, sequels, where are they now sequels? Yes, people should comment, can you comment, how do you comment on a podcast? You can comment on socials. on socials. Yeah, give us us your ideas. If you think this is the way forward for the sequel, (laughs) or tell your, your, your other ideas for the sequel and if you could write like just 50,000 words Tristan will steal it that would be great writing time for Nano yes and then you can just start Nano with 50,000 words yes smash the gripe how good would that be <laughs> all written I by didn't even the make collective that last time didn't you no I got to 35 and I, I couldn't I don't know what happened I couldn't do it I don't think I beat you did I I think I I'm think you might sad. have really I think you might oh, have I, don't I think, think I, I had feel a better good, good thank you thank you for feeling better about my failures <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it 200 picture books this year. <laughs> yeah, just smash them out in a month. <laughs> um, you're a visual researcher too, which is what I really like. And even on your spreadsheet, you had images and pictures. How does that help you create the story? Um, I, well, partly I think I get bored easily. Um, and so I need the visuals just to, if you're, if you're just staring at the screen and it's just words every single day, I don't know. I, I feel like a picture can capture the feeling and tone of a scene or a chapter or a character in a way that that many words aren't. So um, it helps me just to have the pictures on the side there like that. Um, It's a great idea. It's on the one spreadsheet. You know, you've got your three-act structure, I think that's what I saw, it was in really tiny font. Yeah. Um, You know, kind of the plot points and at the end like just one image to represent each chapter or each scene. Yeah, each chapter. Yeah. And I feel like it becomes part of the DNA of the story. All those images and all those maps. Does it keep you on track as well? I think so. Yeah, like the tone of the story. I think so. Mm. The tone, I mean, it's hard to find pictures that 
lots of pictures that yeah, yeah, fit yeah. a similar tone and carry it carry it through. But I think if you've got even just one picture for each chapter, and you are writing towards trying to capture the feeling of that of that picture, it's like when you if you're storyboarding for film, you know you've got to try and you know the, the frame that you draw is the most important frame yeah, in that sure. shot perhaps yeah. um, so it's a similar thing you're trying to capture what's the essence of that scene or the essence of that chapter um, which is what you do when you're trying to write a one sentence outline for each chapter yeah. as well yeah. what is the most important thing about this chapter mm -hmm. and if you can boil it down or, or um, yeah, yeah if you can Di yeah. get the essence distill of it, it yes distill it that's right. mm -hmm. I like that so you have written funny books you know we've got Knit Boy and all the other past series as well and now you're sort of delving into the dark side I mean there is humor particularly in Cotton Robber and the Dad but you've sort of delved into this dark mysterious almost crime thrillery sort of genre I don't know what to call it um, how did you move into that and do you think you can go back to that funny books or do you think you're going on a completely different path well I think even Ginger Meg came out last year so I was still writing um, funny stuff then and in a way, it helps to have the two things yeah. on the go. Um, with Cop and Rubber, I've tried to put more humour into the book so it becomes crime but also has an element of comedy running through it. Yeah. Um, Which is the best type of crime, I reckon, because it takes away from that heaviness. I think so. You know? There's always that, that little bit of gravity yeah. or that yeah. little bit of a break. And I love crime fiction. Even if you read crime fiction and the voice of the character is really sarcastic or really, you know, kind of has a weird sense of humour, it just lightens that... Yeah, so we like Jack all... Heath's Yeah, stuff exactly, there, yeah. like Hangman and Paul Cleave, he's got a great voice as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that real kind of, and the Nancys. Yep. R.W.R. McDonald. So yeah, all of those really stand out for me because they do have that great voice. Yeah. So you've got the darkness, then you have a laugh as well, or, or a, you know, a cringe or whatever it is. That's why I like Morris Gleitzman's stuff yeah. with kids too, that he, yeah. and his thing, I've heard him say this, and I've also heard... Um, who is the author of Flora and Ulysses and um, let me see the one about the rabbit, the porcelain rabbit. Uh, I'm sure that listeners know who this is, but um, Kate DiCamillo. So she talks about, and Morris talks about, going into the darkest places of humanity, um, but also finding the, light, the lightness in that, finding moments of lightness. and. And I love the challenge of that, of going to darker places um, for kids, because kids sense, you know, in your own family, and they experience things, and they see things, and there's they hear things. There's a curiosity about it, too. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I couldn't get enough of horror films. You know, there's something about you at that age that wants to experience those dark places, perhaps in a safe space. I think so. And truth. They just want you know, honesty and authenticity as opposed to being protected from everything. And uh, I just think it's a really interesting age, that late primary, early high school sort of age. Is, yeah, not um, an adult, not quite a little kid, really curious. And as a parent, you're still a bit worried about what information they're getting, but they're probably just going to get it on their own anyway. I think so. I think so. And this is, it's not like, uh, I, try, I try not to pull too many punches and I try to just leave everything in and then later on if there's anything that feels a bit too um, a bit too much for who I imagine the readership yep. is we might trim it a little bit but yep. pretty much you can you can explore some pretty big stuff yeah. with, with that age group but I think that's the process for writing with children you push it as far as you can because it's much easier to bring you back than it is to inch you forward I think you so think? Yeah. I think so definitely yeah I think so too and your publisher will always say 
Tristan, what are do you we doing? need this here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but surprisingly, they they are very, they give lots of leeway. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think it's why kids have gravitated towards the books and over the years that they'll, that they, that they'll continue to sell those novels just because they have that bit of darkness and kids just want it. Even if, when you when you're telling the story verbally in a session, you'll see the kids sort of lean forward when they feel like there's something that maybe isn't in a lot of kids. Yeah, but I mean, uh, look at Goosebumps. Yeah. Now that's actually, the covers are terrifying. Yeah. That little mannequin doll, oh, what they call? that's the one you always think oh of, isn't God. it? What are they called? Ben, what yeah. are they, ventriloquists or what they yeah, called? Yeah, ventriloquists. Terrifying, dummy. terrifying dummy, yeah, they're terrifying. So, and the kids, they obviously were the biggest selling books Absolutely. for ages, and kids really like that's being scared or exploring dark places, as we do, that's why I like crime fiction, yeah. in a safe space. Yes. And you used to have to, when I was a kid, you had to start reading Cujo in year six kind of thing and Pet Cemetery. in the, I remember in year six having conversations with, with friends who were also reading Stephen King because yeah. there really wasn't anything yeah. in between. Pet Cemetery still scarred me. I loved it as a kid, but it still scarred me. Yeah. I still think about it. It's still so clear to me. You know, those visceral images, even all these years later. Yeah. What did you read in, like, year five, six, seven, eight? Yeah, what what would you have been reading? Oh, probably things that were too old for me, like Pet Cemetery and uh, Flowers, Flowers in the, the Attic. attic. Oh. oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't read it, Jeez. but I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> And I don't actually know if my mum knew what was in those books. Yeah. But I, I hear pretty, I hear some pretty pretty heavy stuff. Pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Pretty, you know, marrying your brother. Yeah. Um, being, not just marrying. No, not just marrying. <laughs> all the things you do when you. <laughs> so I think I was like, I'll just hide this book under my bed so mum doesn't read it and yeah. take it away from me because you do want to explore those things. Um, those darker things as a kid because it's exploring humanity and yourself as well you know and mm. I think all those books help you to then be able to take all those ideas in life and, and explore them as well because all of us have shades of light and dark yeah you know I mean when we do as parents I know I do try and protect your kids from all of that but in a way you also have to prepare them for what life throws at them as well and give yeah. them that resilience you know which I think those books kind of do yeah and books should should have some danger to them too I, I think if books are seen as safe and predictable and yeah. you know what it is I mean that's why kids drop off from reading yeah. but yeah. if you know that there's something in a book that's going to really kind of you know uh, get you excited yeah. or, or on the edge of your seat I mean books should should Absolutely. be all of those things yeah. um, and I think that process of you know secretly a book being you know secretly read kind of thing you you i mean you hope yeah. that your books will be secretly read yeah absolutely or you know the band books you instantly want to read the books that are banned yeah exactly <laughs> and i don't have time to read everything that my kids read yeah i just well, have to they're trust. so fast That's they read right. so quickly yeah, yes. too and i have the time obviously to do that as well so you just have to trust that you know you're you've done a good job and they'll come to you to talk about things and my kid reads all the wings of fire books and yeah. i don't know what's in them yeah but you know you just have to let them you have to let them kind of be their own person as well and trust them yeah. that they're going to and it's not as not as intense as if you see something really full on in on video I or agree. on film or something I you agree. know you can you are you are in control of the yeah, process you've got do you that turn the page sensor, or not? don't you yeah, yeah you can like, skip a few paragraphs or something yeah. movie, but even though i read my kids harry potter the movie the first one particularly you know at the end when the back of the head thing goes on can't even exactly remember queer all i think that my kids couldn't watch that yeah you know but they could they could read it they could have it read to them yeah. which was really interesting yeah yeah no i love that idea of um 
I read this quote the other day that said, if an idea is not dangerous, it's not worth doing. Absolutely. Isn't there a festival of dangerous mm. ideas too? Mm. And I always like those books about, you know, 50 dangerous things to let your kids do. And those people who sort of say, drive a car, you know. I still um, need to get start there, Start a bonfire when they're two. Okay, this is um, giving me quite a bit of anxiety. Yeah. She's breaking out. Um, but I might get the book and maybe water it down a bit more. Yeah, maybe. But in saying Rip that, out a few pages. all of them, yeah. left with the cover. Yeah. But I don't mind, I'm, I'm quite open to like, let's go rock climbing kids, let's go skating, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'm not completely danger adverse when it comes to them. Yes. Anyway. I, think, I think having um, characters who have a bit of space when they're not being constantly monitored by yeah, the parents too is, is good too yeah, in yeah. that sort of 80s way I think that maybe that's why we all love Stranger Things too you know that the kids have all this bandwidth and space yeah. to be doing their own I thing and I, I'm always so nostalgic about the 80s because it's such a different time now and you, even though we grew up in the 80s and we did have that freedom I didn't give that freedom to my kids no, did you? me either isn't that weird? yeah Absolutely, we did the opposite. And then now they'll have kids and they'll never see them between right. 1 and 18. I do feel very sorry for people who didn't grow up in the 80s, Tristan. It was the best, it was the best time, I reckon, the best yeah. time to grow up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I've got a last question for you, which I've asked, but I'm wondering if it's shifted over time. So I always ask, why do you write? So why do you keep writing? Is it the same sort of drive that has always driven you or does it change from book to book, from year to year as you grow and mature? I think it changes because you do, you realise that the goals that you had at the beginning, you might have achieved. Like at first it was just, how do I work out how to write books and make that my living? Yeah. And then it's like, that would be amazing. And then, you know, I think between doing a lot of speaking and, and other things in the, the kind of high chart of, you know, income and things yeah. um, around books, I've managed to do that. And, uh, you know, but do I, what, so what do I write now? You know, I do, I, I don't write just to get published because I've had books published. Um, do I write uh, just for my own curiosity? Do I do it just to try to continue to keep alive what I've, you know, what I've already done and yeah. to maintain an audience? I don't know. I don't think those those ideas are compelling enough. I certainly don't write for awards and things. Sometimes I try to think, well, why don't I try to, you know, imagine I could win the Pulitzer Prize or the Booker <laughs> Prize or the CBCA, I have faith in you, um, you know, Book of the Year or whatever it is. What's that? The Astrid Lindgren, which is worth, you know, a million bucks or something. Um, so I still want to win that one. Suddenly Tristan will just listening. ghost all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. why, why do you write? And I think it comes down to, one, there's a, somewhat of a compulsion there. Yeah. Um, two, I can't think of a better way to spend my time. I really, there aren't that many jobs that allow you to sort of disappear yeah. into a fictional world for hours a day. Um, and also, I think part of it is the community around um, books as well. You get to meet great people like you and you get to hang out with all those people at the yeah. launch this morning where there were heaps of kids and you get to tell them stories and you get to say, hey, this is how I wrote this book. And you know, I was in America and I had this idea and then I was driving up and I, had, and I wrote down these words and then these were the pictures I gathered and this is the music I like. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty fun way to spend your time. Absolutely. And I, I, I really, I love all of it. And I, I, I've been enjoying in the last couple of years too some of the um, development of 
um, my books for TV. Mm -hmm. um, Tom Weekly yeah. and Two Wolves, and then I've been doing some development on The Fall. And then Detention mm -hmm. has recently been um, optioned for wow. theatre by a great theatre company as well. So um, those things really keep me inspired too. So moving from a draft and then getting to, to spend some time in that other world that's sort of dabbling and having fun. And you are a creative person, you know, and I think creativity does spill into other things, you know, when you're a writer or an actor or a director or a scriptwriter, like being creative spills into all different types of ways of showing that creativity, I think. Yeah, and I think what it comes down to though is not, I don't want to be, um, I, at the end of the day, if I, if I can continue to write books and make a living from it, that's the thing that I'm that will satisfy me yeah. most. The other things are, are, are fun yeah. and trying stuff out, but um, you know, I would be happy if I continued to do this for, for the rest of my career. I love it. I love it. And I can't wait to read Scartown because I know that that has been something that you've been unknotting for a while. And sometimes it's just about the books being ready at the time they're ready. Do you believe that? I think so. I think so. This one, I actually, Penguin bought the book few years ago and I kept on throwing other books in front of it and saying hey how about I write this one and that one and this one and that one and then finally where the, the rubber's hitting the road or whatever the term is and I um, I need to deliver it by October so it's the business end of the writing season and uh, I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful if not confident. Yeah, I am so curious about this and I can't wait to read it as well. So as usual, Tristan, it's always so great to catch up. Love talking about your work, love reading your books and it's just so great to see you in front of an audience explaining all your process and all that you do and then having this chat with you too. So thank you again. Thank you for coming to the launch of Cop and Rubber and being here on the day it's released. How good's that? <laughs> That's right. Straight from the airport, straight to your launch. So good. <laughs> and then she's flying straight out after this on the Concorde. That's a lie. Okay. <laughs> right. Thanks, Tristan. Okay. See ya.